Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. Today's topic, UFO debris at Nolan Labs. That's correct. UFO debris is reportedly being studied at Nolan Labs, which is part of Stanford University. Seems to me to be kind of a story that's been a little bit under the radar. We hear so much about what's going on with the video released by the U.S. government or the Lewis Elizondo stuff or any of that, but here it looks like we have some actual UFO debris from a 1945 Trinity sighting being studied at what's called Nolan Labs, and that's actually a laboratory named after the scientist who's doing the research. Now, I found this article on brobible.com they have a lot of UFO stuff on there Uh, the title says UFO debris from various alleged crash sites is being studied in a Stanford lab the article is dated September 10th 2021 it begins by saying a professor of microbiology and pathology at Stanford University is currently investigating and analyzing alleged UFO artifacts now that should tell you something They've got a guy who's an expert in microbiology and pathology studying this stuff, okay? You take that in light of the recent COVID scamdemic, imagine what a real pandemic would be like if something from another galaxy came here somehow. It says, the professor says he got into studying UFOs when he was approached by people representing the government and an aerospace corporation. This is another scary thing to me. Here we go again. We have the U.S. government partnering up with an unnamed aerospace corporation. We've talked about this before, how this just allows a government to be infinitely secretive about stuff. You can't send a FOIA to Robert Bigelow, okay? You can't send a FOIA request to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. It's not how it works. So when the government partners with these big corporations, they have a complete Indemnity, really. I mean, there's nothing you can do to find out what's actually going on. It says debris from several UFO cases dating back to 1947. That's actually not correct. The Trinity case goes back to 45. It's now being studied by Dr. Gary Nolan at the Nolan Lab at Stanford University. It says, yes, the lab is named after him, so you know he's good. In a recent interview with KQED, Nolan discussed how he got involved in UFO studies and what he's currently working on with his research. Nolan says he first got involved working on UFOs when he was approached by some people representing the government and an aerospace corporation to help them understand the medical harm that had come to some individual related to supposed interactions with an anomalous craft. Now think about this. This guy's a big-shot Ph.D. at Stanford University. You think he's going to lie about this? I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think he'd have any reason to. He says the government and a space corporation came to him to understand the medical harm that had come to some individual related to supposed interactions with an anomalous craft. Well, what's this guy's expertise? 
microbiology, and pathology. I mean, if it was radiation burns, wouldn't they have taken him to a radiation doctor? It almost sounds like this this individual got sick after touching a spacecraft, and they're worried that it might be some kind of biological thing. It goes on and says, I wonder if they were wearing black suits, white shirts, and Ray-Bans. Not that he would remember neuralizers after that. Yeah, they could do without the joking around the article, actually. Currently, Nolan is working on in, on alleged artifacts from UFOs, including some from a case previously worked on by famous UFO researcher Jacques Vallée. You can think of it as almost like an investigative forensics, Nolan explained. Somebody claims something happened or didn't happen, and so you use whatever psychological or scientific means to investigate and document the case. And in the case of some of these materials, they're almost all metals that are claimed to have been either dropped by the UAPs or somehow left behind. Now, here they go using this word phenomena, you, you, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. I'm not so sure that a phenomena has a three-dimensional metal part to it. You know, basically these things were saying they were left behind by UFOs. In the case of Trinity, two boys got into what they claimed is a craft and took a piece of it, and they kept it since 1945. I come to it with no preconceptions. I come to it with, well, here's how you do the analysis, and I'm the best person to do, and am I the best person to do the analysis? No, no, absent an actual metallurgist stepping in, I'm willing to do the groundwork to get preliminary results that might interest a sufficiently expert metallurgist to go to the next step. Nolan is also, has also been working on UFO debris from Colombia and Argentina, as well as an alleged 1945 crash in New Mexico. I think they might be talking about the Trinity case there. The things that interest me are the most. The things that interest me the most are the cases where there are claimed changes in isotope ratios of given elements. Said Nolan. The point I have always made is we don't know why you would do that in the first place because it's expensive, and so if somebody is is engineering isotopes ratios for a practical purpose, I'd like to understand why because that would be evidence of an understanding of material science that we don't currently possess. Despite the usual giggles from his colleagues regarding his UFO studies, Nolan says, I think the crux of the whole issue here is, why are we afraid of talking about it? That's refreshing to have someone ask that question. Even at this level, at this PhD level, it's expert in these fields, why are we afraid of talking about it? Could it upset their entire theory of everything? Could it upset their apple cart? It's interesting that suddenly in the last year this has come to national attention. We train these pilots for tens of millions of dollars and we entrust them with multi-million dollar pieces of equipment. Now people are coming to me who kind of giggled in the past and they're saying, Gary, it looks like you might have been right. I'm really interested in this. Can you tell me more? It's a little bit more open now, and that's a good thing. And if it's disproven, ultimately I'm perfectly fine with that. Nolan also added that he isn't alone. There are dozens of scientists currently working on various UFO cases. They just aren't as public with it as he is. Science News reports that Nolan 
has studied some of this alleged UFO debris using a machine that enables a scientist to look at the atomic structure of a selected material. The process, called multiplexed ion beam imaging, revealed that the composition of the debris was unlike any currently known metal. Now this is just this piece from 1945 from the Trinity case. Unlike any currently known metal. This takes me back to uh, the cases of the implants. Uh, Patient 17, I believe, was the, was the documentary on that, where the fellow had the implant removed by uh, oh, the late the late surgeon. Uh, not Greer, I'll think of his name. Anyway, they took this and had it tested by a metallurgist, and they found that there was nothing that, he said there was nothing like this in this galaxy. That this combination of metals didn't even come from the Milky Way. Somehow they know the different types of metals, I guess, from our galaxy or whatever. But it's not not of this world. And there is no lab on Earth that could reproduce this stuff. At least not that we know of. It's like Nolan saying, why would they make it anyway? It would be so expensive and require so much energy. It says, if you're talking about advanced material from an advanced civilization, you're talking about something that I'll just call an ultra-material, said Nolan. It's something which has properties where somebody is putting it together again at the atomic scale. We're building our world with 80 elements. We're building our world with 80 elements. Somebody else is building the world with 253 different isotopes. Now think about that. You're going from 80 to 253. You might be thinking, well, that's just, what, 150 more? No, 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 no. This stuff operates on a, uh, how should we say, on, on an exponential scale. That's like increasing the lottery numbers from five numbers to eight numbers, and then adding a parable. We're working with 80 elements. They're working with 253 isotopes. And some strange things can be happening. The truth is out there, it says, and then it has a, it has a uh, promo for this movie. Uh, the, the, the link is at the website, of course, ufowarning.com. Ufowarning.com. You can go there and check this article out. It's just a short recap of an interview you did. And I've got a link to the actual interview. We can take a look at that, too. Um, I want to take a look at the case that they referenced... Which, um, I guess I really haven't heard that much about, maybe. This is something that's a little bit news to me, but um, it's it's about the case in Trinity. And this article comes from thinkaboutitdocs.com. It says, and then it begins, says, 1945, New Mexico UFO Crash Encounter. And the article was updated March 14th, 2021. Think about it, sightings report, date August 16th, 1945 says, Heineck classification, close encounter of the third kind, close observation with animate beings associated with the object, number of witnesses multiple, crash retrieval, humanoid occupant, children witness a photo, and then it says, source Ben Moff at the Mountain Mills, Sirocco, New Mexico, November 2nd, 2003. Now, I have seen some articles, or some uh, a book online about this, too, on Amazon that was advertised. There was a link um, to this book about the Trinity Encounter uh, in this Bro Bible article. That you, you can you can reach it from on the website, 
uh, UFOWarning.com. It says, summary description, Remy Baca and Joseph Padilla were young boys living in San Antonio, New Mexico in August 1945 when they literally stumbled across the remains of what they believed to have been an alien spacecraft. Their personal account of these cases, their personal account of these of this of the case displays many of the ingredients of crashed UFO lore. Now keep in mind this is 1945, so that would have been two years before the Roswell incident, which happened in 1947, and probably about the just about the time World War II ended. It says uh, full report UFO crash UFO encounter 1945, and then it has a link. Just before dawn on July 16, 1945, scientists detonated the world's first atomic bomb at Trinity, some 20 miles southeast of San Antonio, New Mexico. Three weeks later, on August 6th and 9th, the United States brought the world brought World War II to a dramatic end by using the bomb to destroy the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 6th, the world first learned that the Trinity event, which had frightened San Antonio Witless, was not an ammunition magazine containing high explosives and pyrotechnics, as the military had reported. It was an atomic bomb, death, the destroyer of worlds, in the worlds of project, in the words of Project's physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. It was in this crucible of suspicion and disinterest, bred by familiarity, that a small contingent of the U.S. Army passed almost unnoticed through the San Antonio in mid to late August 1945 on a secret assignment. Little or nothing has been printed about the mission, shrouded in the hush-hush atmosphere of the time, but the military detail apparently came from White Sands Proving Grounds to the east where the bomb was exploded. It was a recovery operation destined for the Mesquite and Greasewood Desert of old US-85 was now milepost 139, the San Antonio exit of Interstate 25. Over the course of several days, soldiers in army fatigues loaded the shattered remains of a flying apparatus onto a huge flatbed truck and hauled it away. Wow. It almost makes you wonder if somehow this UFO hadn't come here to observe the, U- the atomic testing and was the um, unfortunate victim of that testing. That such an operation took place between August 20th and August 25th, 1945, there is no doubt, insists two former San Antonios, San Antonians, Remigio Baca and Joe, or Jose Padilla, every <clears throat> eyewitnesses to the event. Padilla, then age nine, and Baca, seven, watched much of the soldiers' recovery work from a nearby ridge, their keen interest stemmed from the first from the first to reach the crash site. What they saw was a long, wide gash in the earth with a manufactured object lying cockeyed and partially buried at the end of it. Surrounded, surrounding by a large field of debris, they believed then and believed today that the object was occupied by distinctly non-human life forms which were alive and moving about on their and moving about on their arrival minutes after the crash. They reported the findings to Jose's father, Faustino Padilla, on whose ranch the craft had crashed. Shortly thereafter, Faustino received a military visitor asking for permission to remove it. During their school years, Jose and Remigio, best friends, would sometimes whisper about the events of that August 
which occurred before any of the other mysterious UFO incidents in New Mexico, but they didn't talk to others about it on the advice of their parents and a state policeman friend. <laughs> Imagine that. The significance of what they saw, however, grew in their eyes over time as tales of UFOs and flying saucers multiplied across the country, especially in a band across central New Mexico. Among the most prominent was Socorro Police Officer Lonnie Zumero. Now, we've talked about Lonnie. Uh, and it says, uh, Jose and Ramigo were long gone from the area by the time UFOs and flying saucers became news. And although both kept up with Socorro events, they lost contact and never discussed the emerging phenomena with each other. Remy moved to Tacoma, Washington while still in high school, and Jose to Roland Heights, California. Then two years ago, after more than four decades apart, they met by chance on the Internet while tracking their ancestry. It was then their interest in the most intriguing event of their childhood was rekindled. That's fascinating. It has to make you wonder if this is how Nolan came in possession of this crash material, because apparently he hasn't had it for that long. He said that somebody had been holding on to it. During one of the conversations, Remigio and Jose decided to tell the story to veteran news reporter Ben Moffat, a classmate at San Antonio grade school who they knew shared their understanding of the culture and ambience of San Antonio to 40s and 50s, who was familiar with the terrain, place, names, and people. This is their story is told to Moffat. And then it goes on and says, uh, The pungent but pleasing aroma of greasewood was in the air as Jose 9 and friend Remigio Baca 7 sat out on a horseback one August morning in 1945 to find a cow that had wandered off to calf. The scent of greasewood, more often called creosote bush today, caught their attention as they moved away from this tiny settlement on their horses, bully and dusty. The creosote scent is evident only when it is moist and its presence on the wild meant rain somewhere nearby. So as they worked the draws on the Padilla Ranch, they were mindful of flash flooding, with which might occur in Walnut Creek or side Oreos, if there were major thunderstorms upstream. Wow! Now this is interesting. You know, in 1945, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old uh, cowboying up, riding their horses out to, to run up this cow. Look, just think how much things have changed. Seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds today are watching YouTube videos and playing video games, pretty much. He goes on, he says, It was not odd to see youngsters roam far afield during chores during the war years. I could ride before I could walk, said Jose in a recent interview. We were expected to do our share of the work. Hunting down a cow for my dad wasn't a bad job, even in the August heat. At length, they moved into the terrain that seemed too rough for the horses' hooves, and Jose decided to tether them, minus bridles, allowing them to graze. He spotted a mesquite thicket, a likely place for a wayward cow to give birth, and they set off across a field of jagged rocks and chola cactus to take a look. As they moved along, grumbling about the thorns, the building thunderheads decided to let go. They took refuge under a ledge above the floodplain, protected somewhat from the lightning strikes that suddenly peppered the area. The storm quickly passed, and as they again moved south, moved out, another brilliant light, accompanying, accompanying by a crunching sound, shook the ground around them. It was not at all like thunder. Another <clears throat> experiment at White Sands? No, it seemed too close. We thought it came from the next canyon adjacent to Walnut Creek, and as we moved in that direction, we hear a cow and a clump of mesquite, said Remy. Sure enough, it was the Padilla cow, licking a white-faced calf. A quick check revealed the calf to be healthy and nursing, and the boys decided to reward themselves with a small lunch. 
Jose had sacked a tortilla each, had sacked a tortilla each, washed down with a few swigs from a canteen and an apple. As they munched, Jose noticed smoke coming from a draw adjacent to Walnut Creek, a main tributary from the mountain to the Rio Grande. Ignoring their task at hand, the two boys headed toward it, and they saw as they topped the rise, stopped us dead in our tracks, Remy remembers, there was a gouge in the earth as long as a football field, and a circular object at the end of it. It was barely visible, he said, through a field of smoke. It was the color of the pony, it was the color of the old pot at my mo- that my mother was always trying to shine up, a dull, metallic color. They moved closer and found the heat from the wreckage and burning greasewood to be intense. You could feel it through the soles of your shoes, said Remy. It was still humid from the rain, stifling, and it was hard to get close. They, re- <clears throat> they retreated briefly to talk things over, cool off, sip from the canteen, and collect their nerve, worried there might be casualties in the wreckage. Then they headed back toward the site. And that's when things really got eerie. Waiting for the heat to diminish... They began examining the remnants at the periphery of the huge litter field. Remy picked up a piece of thin, shiny metal that he says reminded him of the tinfoil and the old, and the old olive green Philip Morris cigarettes pack. That reminds me a little bit of the tinfoil found at Roswell two years later. It was folded up and lodged underneath a rock, apparently pinned there during the collision, said Remy. When I freed it, it unfolded all by itself. It refolded, and it spread itself out again. Remy put it in his pocket. Finally, they were able to work their way to within yards of the wreckage. That's exactly the kind of metal that was discovered at Roswell two years later, this memory metal. Fearing the worst and not quite ready for it, I had my hand over my face, peeking through my fingers, Remy recalled. Jose, being older, seemed to be able to handle it better. As they approached, they saw what the, they saw, what they thought was definitely, they did see, which... The writing here is a little unclear. They definitely did see movement in the main part of the crash. Strange-looking creatures were moving around inside. So now they're looking from the outside to the inside of the craft, and they can see creatures inside the craft. Which tells me there must have been some kind of windows in that thing, or the door was open or something. They looked under stress. They moved fast as if they were able to will themselves from one position to another in an instant. Man, have we heard that before. It's almost like they're moving back and forth through this other dimension. They were shadowy and expressionless, but definitely living beings. Remy wanted no part of whoever, whatever, was inside. Jose wasn't afraid of much, but I told him we should get out of there. I remember we felt concerned for the creatures. They seemed like us, children, not dangerous, but we were scared and exhausted. Besides, it was getting late. The voice backtracked, ignoring the cow and calf. It was a little after dusk when they climbed on their horses and dark when they reached the Padilla home. Faustina Padilla asked about the cow and got a quick report, and we found something else, Jose said, and the story poured out quickly and almost incoherently. It's kind of hard to explain, but it was long and round, and there was a big gouge in the dirt, and there were these hombrecitos, little guys. Their tail unfolded as Jose's father listened patiently. They were running back and forth, looking desperate. They were like children. They didn't have hair, Jose said. We'll check it out in a day or two, Faustino said, unalarmed, and apparently not worried in the least about the survivors or the medical emergencies. It might be something the military lost, and we shouldn't disturb it. Leave your horse here, Remy and Josie, and I will drive you home, since it's so late. Two days later, at about noon, state policeman Eddie Opatica, a family friend who had been summoned by Faustino, arrived at the Badilla home. 
Jose and Remy directed Apadita and Jose's dad toward the crash site, toward the crash site, and two vehicles, a pickup and a state police car. When they could drive no further, they parked and hiked to the hillside where the boys had initially spotted the wreckage. As they topped the ridge, they noted the cow and calf had moved on, probably headed for home pasture. When they walked a short distance to overlook for a second, Jose and Remy are dumbfounded. The wreckage was nowhere to be seen. What could have happened to it, Remy asked. Somebody must have taken it, Jose responded defensively. Opadaka and Fastino stared intently but unaccusingly at Jose and Rume, trying to understand. They headed down the canyon, nonetheless, and suddenly, as, as if by magic, in Remy's words, the object reappeared from the top of the hill. It blended into the surroundings, Remy explained recently. The sun was at a different angle, and the object had dirt and debris over it, which he, suspect, which he speculated may have been put there by someone after the crash. Apodaca and Festino led the way to the crash, then climbed inside while Jose and Rime were ordered to stay a short distance away. I can't see the Humbricitos, Rime offered. No replies, Jose. No replies, Jose, but look at those marks on the ground, like when you drag a rake over it. The huge field of litter had been cleaned up, Rime recalled. Who did it and when? I have no idea. Was it the military using a helicopter or the occupants? The main body of the craft, however remained in place, with odd pieces dangling everywhere. Now it was time for the adults to lecture Remy and Jose, and Remy remembers, listen, <clears throat> listen carefully, don't tell anyone about this, Remy quoted Faustino as saying, Remy, your dad just started working for the government, he doesn't need to know anything about it that might cause him trouble. Faustino also worked for the government at Bosque del Apache National Wildlife Refuge, and the ranch itself was on leased federal land. Faustino was a patriotic man and honest to a fault in his dealing with the federal government, according to Jose. The government calls them weather balloons, the state policeman chipped in. I'm here to help Faustino work out the recovery with the government. They'll want this thing back. But this isn't like the weather balloons we've seen before, said Remy. They were little, almost like a kite. You're right, Remy. Esti on Montruso que no Eddie, Faustino said. Yeah, it's big for sure, said the state policeman in lodge. And the Hombrecitos, Remy persisted. Maybe you just thought you saw them, said Faustino. Or maybe someone took them, or they just took off, then they headed home. The cow and calf also grazed their way back in a day or two. And then it goes on and says, The next week the story continues with the military's removal of the wreckage, while Jose and Remy, equipped with binoculars, spy on their every move, including the soldiers slipping off to the Albar for a little diversion. Jose and Remy also looked back at the incident from the perspective of time. Was the object required? Was the object that required a flatbed truck, an L extension, a weather balloon, or an alien spacecraft from another dimension? Well, I'm going to tell you, probably if it required a flatbed truck, it was not a weather balloon. Then it goes on and says, in mid-August of 1945, before the term flying saucer was coined, Remigio Barca, age 7, and Jose Padilla, 9, were the first on the scene of the crash of a strange object, strange object at the Beetle Ranch west of San Antonio, a tiny village on the Rio Grande village on the Rio Grande in central Mexico. This article goes on for quite a long ways. I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but you can go to the website and you can and you can uh, go ahead and uh, take a look at it. In fact, uh, there's a whole book that's been written about it. The fact is. 
something was seen. It seems very similar to the crash that happened at Roswell. We have reports of, uh, of alien beings, small, child size. We have reports of a craft. We have reports of this uh, almost like a memory metal. And then the boys uh, apparently had talked about even going inside the craft, which is not really brought up here. But fast forward that to 75 years in the future, and now we find out that at Nolan Labs at Stanford University, they are actually uh, studying and experimenting on some of the metal from that crash. And what are we finding out? This metal doesn't come from 80 different elements. It comes from 253 isotopes. It's put together at an atomic level, which means it has a level of complexity that, that's light years ahead of anything our military is capable of. Anything. So this is where the real research is being done. It's being done quietly in these labs. It's being done on evidence that was collected 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And it's being done by either uh, universities or private corporations where it's out of the reach of FOIA requests. This is why you're not getting disclosure. The disclosure, the disclosure you're getting is uh, orbs moving across a video screen. Excited pilots talking about, wow, did you just see that? The disclosure that you're not getting is what are these things made out of? How do they operate physically in our space? Are they interdimensional or are they from another galaxy? Where do they come from? And what's what's going on with these these aliens that we that we've repeatedly seen in the craft? Are they biological? Are they some kind of a hybrid material? He talks about these things moving from point A to point B almost like light, just dancing across. Doesn't seem like a physical creature. Seems like something that's moving in and out of our dimension almost. But they have limits, obviously. This craft was this craft was disabled. It couldn't get away. I mean, apparently it got itself out of the crash scene, but was unable to escape the clutches of the U.S. military. And where it went from there, who knows. Lots and lots of interesting stuff. There's lots of developments happening under, uh, under the surface, not being found, say, on mainline news, perhaps. But this is where the real interesting stuff's happening. It's happening in labs across the country that we're just not being told about it. Now, some of these guys are coming out and really, and really giving interviews and saying, "Yeah, this is what we're doing." And it's quite fascinating, actually. But these old cases deserve a lot more attention that we can go back and look at. This case, to me, where these two seven-year, this seven-year-old, nine-year-old boy have this close encounter with this craft and these aliens, it's actually far more interesting to me than a video released by. Tom DeLong and a bunch of deep staters. I mean, this stuff here has actual physical evidence associated with it. And here we are, what, uh, 75, 80 years later, finally having this evidence in our hand where someone's looking at it. That's the fascinating part. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out.